Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in social cultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am thrilled to welcome back Professor Stan B.H. Tan Tangbao to the show as my first repeat guest. Professor Tan Tangbao is a Vietnamologist who has taught at the National University of Singapore as well as Ritsu Meikan University in Japan. Today, we are discussing his new book, written in collaboration with Liu Quanmin and Quen Tian Duc, entitled Jazz in Socialist Hanoi, Improvisations Between Worlds, which was published in 2022 with Rutledge. Professor Tan Tangbao, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Adam. It's great to see you again. I am most honored to be your first repeat guest. So why Hanoi? Well, um... When we talk about jazz in, in Vietnam, I, I, I reckon some people would think about, we, I should be writing about Saigon because after all, um, Saigon was in the ambit of the Americans' influence for quite a long time during the Vietnam War. Certainly that the influences there. But if we are talking about present-day jazz, if we are talking about the emergence of jazz under socialist rule, it has got to be in Hanoi for a few reasons. Number one, it is in Hanoi where we find a very active group, quite a significant group of musicians, Vietnamese musicians playing jazz regularly, professionally. It is in Hanoi that we have the first Vietnamese-owned jazz club, Ming's Jazz Club. This year will mark the 25th anniversary of the club. It's been playing jazz continuously for 25 years. Now, that's quite a record in in Asia, I would reckon, as and in of all places in Vietnam. And it is also in Vietnam, in, in Hanoi, at the um, National Academy of Music. That's the National Conservatoire, where jazz is first introduced as an official subject beginning in the early 1990s, before it kind of expanded into a full-fledged faculty several years ago. So it makes sense to talk about if you want to talk about jazz in Hanoi in present-day Vietnam, he has to start with Hanoi. So starting in Hanoi, could we begin kind of where music was at during and after the war in Vietnam? Sure. Now, um, most of us who are familiar with Vietnam will know that um, d- during the war, um, cultural practices are all very tightly controlled. One reason being, of course, the war in the South, the Liberation War. And the second reason being that Vietnam at that time, Northern Vietnam actually, was at a stage of a very intensive socialist revolution, working towards um, um, achieving socialism. So things were so tightly controlled, there's really not much resources left for many other things. So music at that time was basically asked to serve the interest of the revolution, the interest of 
the nation in terms of fighting the war. So people will be familiar with this term called red music or nyak doll, where these are all very um, patriotic music, music that is filled with slogans um, that conveys the messages of different social reform campaigns, um, campaigns to fight the war, to mobilize resources for the war and everything. So these are pretty heavy music. And these are the kind of music that we will hear on the radio, on the public speakers, and especially live performances where you have all these um, state um, song and dance troops, artists' troops going around to perform, to raise funds, mobilize resources, to encourage the people, to boost the morale of the troops. They'll be playing all this kind of music in order to get everyone into the act, into, to, to support whatever the state and the party was trying to do. Very heavy-duty music. So that's the main thing that we hear. But at the same time, in order to have people able to play all this kind of music, these are not easy music to be played in the first place, uh, to compose this kind of music, they have to pour in resources to, to train musicians. So they, they formed the Vietnam School of Music, which um, later on became the, the, the National Academy of Music in Vietnam. So over there, they were trained... The, Musicians who, who, who helped to establish the school, they focused very strongly on um, high art music, namely classical music, what they call proper mainstream music, the proper art form, the highest art form in music. So it was very serious about classical music. It's all about training how, them how to master the instruments, understand the theory in classical music so that they can compose their own music for different purposes, especially for the revolution, and as well as to raise the, the artistic level, aesthetics level of the general population. And along the way, you have a lot of support from their socialist allies from China, from Eastern Europe, from Russia, sending musicians and professors coming to Vietnam to train them or giving them scholarships to study in these host countries so that they can get their proper certifications, get receive proper training, so, so in, in, in the public sphere, other than red music, you do hear some classical music. And the other one is, of course, um, traditional um, ethnic and folk music in Vietnam. So it's about, it's a kind of nationalism emphasizing the ethnic diversity of the country and unity of the population, of the diverse population. So you have all these ethno, ethnomusicologists going out to collect the performances, of the ethnic minorities, bringing them back to the city to train them, to learn how to play this kind of music and, and pass it on to other people. So you hear quite a fair bit of um, traditional ethnic and folk music in, in the public sphere as well. But it's all in the public sphere. Although um, other popular music that were commonly heard before the war, popular Vietnamese music, they were kind of um, implicitly banned initially, then explicitly restricted and prohibited later on. They call that yellow music. You, you don't hear this in the public sphere. People dare not even sing them or play them at home for fear that someone will report you. But in very informal occasions, um, like wedding parties, birthday parties, 
any possible occasion where you can do some proper celebration approved by the state. They do play um, lighter music, like um, pokers. That's very, this, this, this is very common during that era. Um, they will play popular classical music, shortened version of it, things like um, saber dance uh, in the Persian market. These were very popular tunes in Vietnam. They also play some um, dance music like cha-cha-cha, rumba, tango for people to listen. Sometimes they do dance if there's not too many people watching, etc. So they, they do have all this kind of instrumental music that were being played during that year. So that was music during the war. Then after the war, what, what we, we know for sure was that especially after 1975, with the South being reunited with the country, the strong influences from um, the United States and other Western countries, it was about holding back, you know, keeping in check all these um, Western capitalist influences. So it was a, a period of very strict control of what could be played in the public sphere, what could be played at home. Very, very tight control. So yellow music was definitely a no-go. You can't even whistle it, I think, for, for, for a period of time. But, it was, but the influences of all this music was too strong. It kind of seeped into everyday music. Even the northern musicians who come into contact with them say, these, these are good melodies, are sophisticated music. So they also introduced that, those rhythms, those beats, the different instrumentations, especially the electric combo band, into the kind of light music they were originally playing at parties and celebrations informally. So as um, Liu Guangming puts it, there was a, a social need for lighter music. It was a period where the serious rate music it couldn't really gel well with the needs of the population in peacetime. So they need to have the people who could really play this kind of music. And so that was uh, after the war, especially from the late 1970s onwards, even so-called rape music that was played for lighter occasions kind of had this kind of influences. Ming himself re remembers forming a combo band with, that was kind of influenced by jazz rhythms, playing all these, all these songs for the audience. So, there was a fear of change. It was like the, the rise of light music from the late 1970s onwards. So this is recounted in several chapters in, in the book. It's quite a fascinating um, um, story on its own. Maybe later on someone will, will, will write a book that focuses specifically on just light music in Vietnam. Yeah, so you, you touch on these different categorizations of music, red music, you just referred to yellow music, uh, light music, and initially jazz, as you write it in the 1980s, is included under that label of light music, right? Yes. Well, the, the story of how jazz um, was allowed to be played, I mean, I, I talked about this in the earlier book, in this book I talked a little bit. I talk about it in more detail, in, in, a more, in a larger context. 
we all know that jazz is um, originated from America, so there was no way jazz could could be heard, could be played after the war. There was no way. But if we look at the broader context of the world, jazz was played in behind the Iron Curtain. So you can find hear it everywhere in Eastern Europe. So keep in mind during the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, the, the Eastern European countries were holding their own jazz festivals. And many, um, the US were sending their own musicians there as part of the um, um, jazz ambassador program to, to play music, to play jazz for the audience there. So they were intermingling with other star musicians like Dizzy Gillespie, Louis Armstrong, Stan Gantz, and the list go on, so on and so forth. We visited all these places. Of course, Dave Rubank in, in Poland, playing jazz with them, and this, the, the musician in Eastern Europe were also influenced by them. And there was a, a strong growth of jazz in behind the Iron Curtain, but not jazz in the sense of the kind of jazz that we're all familiar with. Different countries were trying to develop their own jazz. So, okay, since it's so popular, instead of just letting it be something from from the capitalist West, from, from the Americans, can we develop our own jazz that is socialist correct, that is um, something that we, that we can say, see, it's something original from maybe from our own traditions. And they did that. Different countries were able to create their own jazz in different ways. So for example, in Poland, we heard about Polsky jazz, Polish jazz, which is very unique qualities, heavily drawn from um, its rich cultural traditions. So these things were already there. So what helped the jazz musicians in Vietnam who, were, who wanted to play jazz was that they could say that you can hear jazz in Eastern Europe. It can be seen as um, socialist music. That's one. And the second thing is that did you, they were riding on the wave of the light music that was emerging, that was rising from the late 1970s onwards. So when Quinn Van Ming first performed jazz in the public sphere in 1988 and 1989, he was very careful. He presented jazz as international light music. So it helped, okay? Jazz could be seen as socialist music. Jazz is international light music. So they kind of disassociated it with that very strong connection. To American music, music of the enemy. And Quinn Van Ming wasn't the only person who did that. Liu Guangming, when he tried to introduce jazz into the curriculum at the National Conservatoire, he knew straight away if he's going to introduce it as jazz music, everyone would say, no, this is too risky and all that. So he presented it as light music. And he knew this is very high quality music that if musicians learn how to play jazz, they could play light music better. They could raise the standard of light music instead of just relegating light music to popular music that has got no artistic value at all. And he felt that the National Conservatoire musicians like themselves have the responsibility to raise that standard. So the, he introduced it as light music and it was very successful because from 1991 onwards, they started experimenting with a pilot program. Then it became permanent um, department, and finally a, a faculty in its own right. So that was how 
they kind of successfully disassociated jazz from its um, American capitalist connections in the early days. Although Vietnam was undergoing um, the Doimon reforms, opening up to the world, adopting the market economy, but these were um, pretty delicate times. You have to be careful what you do. So they, they took a very, um, say, um, calculated steps to make sure that it is a sustainable endeavor. And as you write in the book, right, there were two things going on. At the same time that they were labeling it international light music, they were also incorporating elements of Vietnamese folk music. Could you talk about that a little bit? Oh, sure. See, this, um, this endeavor to draw from their traditional musical heritage was not something new, was not something invented by the Vietnamese musicians. So even from the early days when Vietnamese mu- music started to, to modernize, it's like they took on um, Western structures of popular music, the chanson, etc., and they started writing lyrics for their own modern popular music. They always keep in mind that, okay, using Vietnamese language, using local themes, etc. But in the 1950s, when... Uh, the communist government was going to start um, uh, to, to form the National Conservatoire de Vietnam School of Music and also to start uh, forming the music associations. All these leading musicians, they got together and, and they had a very robust discussion. What directions should we go? How should we develop the music scene in Vietnam? How should we develop music in Vietnam? How should we develop musical education in Vietnam? They acknowledge that things like classical music, these are very international traditions. It's, these are proven to be a very high art form that everyone in the world could learn something from, could draw something from. So what could they do to develop their own traditional musical heritage? So they always remind people that whatever their own musicians, that whatever that we do, if we go towards classical music, rape music, we should always, always try to do two things. One is draw from our rich heritage so that we have our own identity. And number two, we should also find always find ways and means to, to develop our traditional heritage so that they are not left behind. It continues to, to move with the development of our society. And one of the phrases that they use at that time was that if if we totally ignore our, uh, I'm paraphrasing, if we totally ignore our traditional musical heritage, we have no legs to stand on in the world. So we always have to do that. So there, there's always this constant reminder among Vietnamese musicians that we must always think about our traditional musical heritage, think about our own musical identity. So when jazz musicians started playing jazz in Vietnam. They always have to make the comparison there. Okay, this is international black music. Um, in what ways is it compatible with our society, with our culture? So remember in the 1980s, late 1980s, this was the era of disco music, heavy rock music. And these were for a while considered as really bad influences on the young generation. This is just noise. This is not art. 
keeping long hands, smoking, bell bottoms. It's almost like, oh, yeah. So they have to, it, to make sure that jazz being presented as international light music is also compatible with Vietnamese traditional musical heritage, cultural heritage, you see. Uh, can we draw something from there and show that we can have our compositions to our own compositions? Can we call it our own jazz, Vietnamese jazz, if it is compatible? So the seeds were planted right at the beginning that they have to show that it is compatible. And it is on par with chamber music in Vietnam, classical music in Vietnam that it could develop in that kind of, into a form of high art too. So what happened was that Vietnamese musicians also had to be very careful. You cannot just take a traditional folk song and jazzify it because it's a traditional heritage. If you jazzify it and it's not well done or someone doesn't like it, you could say that, yeah, look, you just insult our own musical heritage and that's going to be a problem. So what they did from the beginning was compose their own melodies, borrow different scales, structures, themes from the traditional ethnic and folk music, for example, among um, the kind of scales, the, uh, the pentatonic scales that you could hear in different ethnic minority musics different kind of rhythms that you could hear from, for example, the Central Highlanders in Vietnam, or themes that you could hear in traditional everyday practices from Buddhist chanting to funerals or ethnic folk songs or traditional folk songs such as Wan uh, Hong from, from, from Bắc Ninh, etc. So they try to draw from all these kind of different influences borrow some rhythm, scales, structures, etc. But using their own original melodies. So that was how tradition um Vietnamese jazz started to evolve from the very early days. It's not a jazzification of traditional folk music, I have to emphasize that. And in chapter three to kind of shift track for a minute. In chapter three, you start talking about places where in Hanoi today you can hear live jazz music. Can we talk about those places? Oh, oh sure. Um, let's start with um, um, in uh, diplomatic occasions. All right. So. I, I will always remember being a Singaporean um, living in Vietnam or visiting Vietnam. Every now and then I attend, if the, if the time is right, I would be attending things like the National Day receptions held in the different hotels in Vietnam. And I, I will always remember was I, when I was attending my first one, my first National Day reception in Hanoi. It was only not too long ago, just several years ago. And as I was walking towards a hotel, a familiar voice called to me, uh, someone sitting by one of the chata, the roadside tea shops, right? And calling out to me, I say, oh, who's this guy calling out to me? And then, hey, it's my, my friend who played saxophone at the jazz club, Vietnamese friend. Say, and he said, are you, are you coming for the reception? I said, yeah, yeah. He said, I'll be playing later. Oh, okay. That's fascinating. So true enough, 
his quartet was playing for the entire reception. They were playing jazz pieces. They were playing um, jazz arrangements of um, National Day songs that, that we often play and sing in Singapore. It was fascinating. I was so impressed. It's like, gosh, Vietnamese jazz musicians playing at a diplomatic event. Actually, this was something that's a regular occurrence. It's, it's very good revenue for them in terms of gigs because these are well-paid gigs, very formal gigs, very respectable. So even from the early days, days of um, introducing jazz in Vietnam, people like Gwen Van Ming and his colleagues, when they play jazz, even before he formed his jazz club, this was one of those um, diplomatic gigs were one of the chief sources of income for them and occasions for them to play jazz. So you hear that it is a common occurrence. You hear that if you attend all these different um, gatherings, diplomatic gatherings, there's one quite unexpected of all places, Vietnam, and then you will hear jazz at the five star hotels. So the five star hotels were one of the earlier places that introduced jazz to in, in socialist Vietnam when Vietnam started opening up. What they did at that time was initially they would hire some local musicians who could, namely Gwen Van Ming and his colleagues at that time, just the, the small group of them, who could play some jazz, they would hire them. Um, but what they did very soon after was they started flying musicians from overseas, American musicians, European musicians, who were very active in the um, hotel jazz lounge scene in the region to come in and perform. So they will do that, but quite often they will they will have the rhythm, the, the a local rhythm section to, to to back up the singers or the key musicians. So hotels will be five star, especially the five star hotels will be the places where you will hear jazz. But the problem is this: with the diplomatic occasions and with the five star hotels, is that five star hotels are really expensive. So if you go there, you find it especially during the 1990s and the early 2000s, it's mainly foreigners. Because of Vietnamese to go there, yes, they can afford it, but it's not the music I like. Why do I want to pay so much to come here? And for the diplomatic occasions, yes, it's mainly foreigners and with um, um, Vietnamese who have, are of a certain stature in the government, not in society, attending these events. So it's not something that um, the ordinary Vietnamese would get to encounter jazz in this kind of life on places. It was only after 1997 that after Ming formed Ming's Jazz Club, the first jazz club in socialist Vietnam, that you have a place that is accessible to anyone who lives in Hanoi. Uh, the prices uh, have always been low, no cover charge, and they, play music, they only play jazz. So you can't go in and expect to hear popular Vietnamese music, rock music, no, it's always jazz, everyday jazz. So this is the main place that you hear jazz continuously. And over time, you, you see other cafes, restaurants introducing jazz. Um, in the book, I talk about one particular restaurant that was the actively um, engaged all these musicians to play jazz there for, for their diners, for their customers. But it closed out after several years. So then that's one of the issues about um, all these other places that's perhaps slightly cheaper. Bars, restaurants, they come and go. It's not easy to do business in Vietnam. And the five-star hotels, it's expensive. Um, 
sometimes and one of the things that the musicians uh, the jazz the Vietnamese jazz musicians of often told me is that yes you, you we play jazz there but we play very light jazz very easy listening kind of jazz if you start to improvise too much it gets too intense people can't find the melody you get feedback from the manager keep it simple <laughs> so these are the places so but one of the mo- most interesting things is that in, in Vietnam, you find jazz at the Opera House. That's the, 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 the Hanoi Opera House that was built by the French. And this is like the dream theater for any musicians in Vietnam. If you're a serious musician, that is a stage that you want to perform in. It is like for American jazz musicians, it's like for, for them to perform at the Carnegie Hall. So it's a huge thing. And guess what? It's a regular occurrence in Vietnam. For the last 20 years, either Ming or his younger colleagues will be holding concerts there. So every year you will find at least a, few, a couple of few concerts, jazz concerts by Vietnamese jazz musicians. And it's becoming quite a regular occurrence in the last few years as more Vietnamese jazz musicians finish their studies overseas, started teaching at the conservatoire, becoming really active in the local music scene. Because quite often, uh, if they are playing as professional musicians, they end up playing pop music, other things of teaching. So the time when they really get to do a real performance, an indulgent performance in jazz, is either a jazz club, which is everyday thing, or you go to the Hanoi Opera House to do a really, really serious presentation that will leave a lasting impression to anyone who, who comes by. So these are the places that you hear jazz, and it's quite impressive, I would say. Speaking of men's jazz club, you would you call uh, the perfect jazz club towards the end of the book? Um, he's faced a lot of problems over the years with the jazz club, right? Yeah. And you just mentioned, of course, that restaurants and bars in Vietnam also have difficulty staying open. Maybe you could touch on some of the problems that Min has faced over the years? Um, sure, sure. So maybe I should start with the current situation. So when Min started this jazz club, it was meant as a training ground, training ground for Vietnamese musicians who aspire to play jazz. So this could be students studying with him and his colleagues at the National Conservatoire or in other music schools in Hanoi. And they're learning to play jazz. And to play jazz, you really have to perform live. And if the five-star hotels or other restaurants engage you for a gig, you are not going to bungle up the gig because you are, you are going to be disinvited pretty soon. So this jazz club becomes a place for all these aspiring jazz musicians to try it out, to really get the experience. And of course, it's always sandwiched in between the acts by the more seasonal musicians. So the aspiring ones would play one or two songs, but the rest of the time is always by the seasonal musicians. So who are the people who come in and support the jazz club? Over the last, I mean, I've been going to this jazz club since, um, I think around 1998 or so. So the first time I went to Vietnam was 97. The jazz club just opened towards the end of the year. I think it was later on. Um, 
No, that's 99. So, I noticed that it's mainly foreigners who will go to the Ming's Jazz Club because I, I think the way I, I felt during those days, my initial experience at the Jazz Club, something that's identified by any foreign visitors is that either I've been traveling in Vietnam for quite a while or I've been living there for quite a while. Sometimes we just long for that kind of music that we really enjoy, that we really like. And it's at times listening to a CD, to a cassette or radio that's recorded music, it's, it's, just, it's just not good enough anymore. It's like I've been there for a while. We long to hear it live. And to see that there's a jazz club offering live jazz, there is a very attractive option every now and then for us to just go in and be absorbed and buy the music and enjoy it. So I, many, I think many foreigners I identify in this way. It's like, oh gosh, jazz, finally, of all places in Vietnam. Then there's also other foreigners that find it very uh, interesting, refreshing to have jazz here. We're curious when we hear what they are doing. And the number of Vietnamese over the years has always been small very small percentage. Sometimes I could maybe find one or two and they don't usually stay long. But over the years, it has been growing the number of Vietnamese audience at the jazz club. So when the pandemic happened, um, when it closed the borders to international travel travelers and it, even af- after they allowed um, people back on the streets, the clubs to be reopened after the in- initial lockdown, there was this concern, will there be customers coming to the jazz club? So I remember the first day they reopened, I, I went back to show my support and also you know, I, I just need to go out and after such a long lockdown. To my surprise, it was filled with people, 90% Vietnamese audience. And so that was perhaps the initial um, excitement of things opening up. But over time, the num- numbers of regular audience uh, dropped down during the pandemic period. What we do find is that the percentage of Vietnamese audience was quite significant. So the chief difficulty that Ming encouraged at the beginning in the early parts of the jazz club was finding the audience. So yes, foreign audience are always welcome because they appreciate the music, they're willing to pay for it, you know, pay for the beers, just to sit down and enjoy the music. But he, 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 not, not too many Vietnamese were coming. So that's the chief difficulty there. So surprisingly, the pandemic actually um, showed that things have changed. It kind of helped in resolving that difficulty. And more importantly, it, it was like um, a reminder to all the jazz musicians. It is really about time that you pay attention to really cultivating the domestic audience, because they are the ones who are here all the time. They are the ones who ultimately be the people supporting your artistic pursuits. So finding the audience, that's one of the chief difficulties. Other difficulties, I mean, it's plenty, of course. We're talking about, at the end of the day, the jazz club is a business. 
So being a business means you have not to not just make ends meet, you have to pay a musician a certain rate. It has to be attractive. But one thing that we all know is that Ming's Jazz Club has the lowest gig rate in Hanoi or in Vietnam. But musicians go there to play simply because they want to play jazz. So, and because of this, um, that it's being a business, so they cannot afford to pay high rate. So, for a long time, Ming's Jazz Club until now remains a training ground for aspiring musicians remains that haunt for seasoned jazz musicians who just want to play jazz and don't really care much about how much money that they make. There is this really dedicated group of Vietnamese jazz musicians there. But there are many who play, who spend their initial years playing there and went out to do their own gigs, get more lucrative gigs, whether playing jazz or other musical genres. So it kind of um, limits the, the musical development of the jazz club itself year in, year out. And again, what happened during this pandemic during the past two years was that um, the seasoned musicians themselves, people like, for example, Dark, find that this is also a place where they can actually really experiment. So when they started writing new music, they finish everything, they could try it out there instead of just go spending a huge amount of money to hold a big concert at the Hanoi Opera House or other concert halls. So they could do like mini shows there to try out new stuff. So it kind of gave the jazz club an identity that's more than just like um, a, a training ground for aspiring jazz musicians all the time. So um, again, the pandemic um, has its ups and downs for many people. Opportunities lost, opportunities gained. So these are the two things that I identify as them. the chief difficulties that they have faced over the years. Other things, it will be things like when the lease run out, what do they do? Do they continue there? Because they see that, oh, you've been successful. You have customers coming. You've been there for a long time without changing hands for five years, 10 years. I'm going to raise the rent. What are you going to do? Because if they pay more rent, they can't afford to run the jazz club and also have to move. So it has to move and it moved several times over the past 25 years. That's, that's the difficulty. It's, it's a problem for any jazz club, I believe. But then the advantage, saving grace is that um, they manage to establish a, rep, a, a, a reputation for themselves that is not tied to a particular location, but rather to the name. And that's not something that many other cafes or restaurants that have been introducing jazz acts could do. So, um, well, if we go to the problems, and I can imagine Ming shaking his head right now, good mummy shaking his head, and then spending the whole night telling you all the different problems he encounters. So I guess these few problems are identified sufficient for now. <laughs> <laughs> well, but before the pandemic, the jazz club was also open seven days a week, right? Has that changed? Correct. Well, that has changed during the, 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 the pandemic when they started to reopen. They realized that they just cannot afford to do that seven days a week now. Because although you have more Vietnamese um, customers coming in, but they won't be coming in seven days a week. And you have no one there, no one to pay for the beer, for the drinks, for the food. 
then they have no income to pay for the musicians. So it has been reduced to about five days, four days, not for the time being. So they were ho- they have been hoping that um, when the foreign tourists start returning, they could revert back to seven days. So um, all this reopening is, of course, good news for everyone. But I just hope that um, they don't depend on that to to and, and, and then sit back in their laurels and say, okay, things are back to normal again. I think a chief lesson that we can take from the pandemic is that we can we can rest comfortably in our laurels about the, the current state of affairs. We have to keep thinking about what can we do better, what can we change. So hopefully um, the, the musicians and their supporters are thinking of ways to reinvent the jazz clubs too. So this is something, an ongoing, ongoing conversation, I think. Professor Tan Tangbo, you're maybe one of the most knowledgeable people on this topic on the planet. I wondered if you could maybe talk about what you see for the future of jazz in Hanoi. Well, I, for the future of jazz in Hanoi, I would say that it has passed on to the next generation. So if you look at people like Liu Guangming, Gun Bamming is the first generation of jazz musicians, educators in socialist Vietnam. In their 60s and 70s, they are, I mean, they're still very actively involved, teaching, performing, organizing events, they're still doing all that. But the main people in the limelight are the people in the next generations. And the later generations. So what this group of younger musicians have been doing is that they've been very actively um, constructing their own um, spaces for performance. Again, during the pandemic, they really ventured into the virtual realm, live stream, concerts, sharing um, jazz MTVs, sharing messages about what they are doing, setting up um, Facebook pages to tell people where you can find jazz performances every now and then in Vietnam. So they venture into that and they're very actively involved instead of sitting back to wait for someone to organize things for them. And they are all very competent musicians, not just because they are from the internet age, so they could have better access to information, instructional videos, um, recordings by other musicians overseas. Also because they have better opportunities to be better trained but at the conservatoire or privately with uh, other musicians. So they are better trained, they are better informed, and there are more opportunities for them to perform. So they are actually able to have pretty good income to a certain extent from playing jazz, not just, and of course they, they, they have opportunities to teach as well. So, um, and again, back to the pandemic is that they kind of, because they have to start focusing on domestic audience, they also realize that what they have to do to kind of engage a local audience is actually to again, look not just look into traditional musical heritage that's important for their original compositions, but also to engage with um, the popular music genre. So singing, 
performing songs about Hanoi, giving um, jazzified versions of popular uh, songs. So they've been doing that. They are beginning to engage. So in this sense, the frequency of hearing jazz, the accessibility of jazz in Vietnam has hit a very positive juncture. You can hear that quite, quite a fair bit. You don't have to find one place to hear it. The musicians are, know what they're doing. They're always striving to improve. So it's another positive thing. But what I am concerned at this point is, um, number one, that are they coming up with creative, innovative, original compositions that do not just follow what has been done before? Are they doing that sufficiently? Are they releasing these original compositions in the public sphere? Because I do know some of these musicians are very productive. They write their own music. They produce their own CDs, but it's not widely distributed. So if you produce something, but then it's not widely distributed, it's kind of like we have to go and find it, but only if we know about it and if we're interested. So music is like um, some um, scholars call it a community of practice, where you have the musicians playing the music where you have the people in between who help you to bring the music to a wider audience. So this could be the radio DJ, this could be the events organizer, concert organizers, whole group of different people who bring the music to the wider society and you have the listeners. So it needs to come full circle in order for jazz to be sustainable. For a long time, especially in the early years of Vietnamese jazz, that, that, that circle was quite limited, but it was enough because they were playing to the audience who would allow the music to be played. <laughs> the cultural power brokers say, this is ideologically okay music we can play. It allows it to be part of the official soundscape to be taught at the national concert, to be played at diplomatic events, to have a jazz club that plays every night, to be played, performed at the Hanoi, concert, uh, Hanoi Opera House. So for a long time, that worked. But in order for it to be sustainable as a professional art form, they need to expand that um, community of practice for it to be sustainable. And you will also find that as more and more Vietnamese um, become more cosmopolitan, whether they've been educated, given a Western-oriented education, a modern education, been overseas, working with foreign companies in Vietnam, you, you find quite a number of Vietnamese who are familiar with jazz as a musical genre or even taken a liking to it. So chances are many of these Vietnamese will be looking to jazz as played, as performed in North America or Europe or versions of it in Southern, South America as the kind of jazz that they like, that they're familiar with and using that as a yardstick to compare with what they would hear live in Vietnam what they would hear 
in recordings found in Vietnam, all these original recordings that I talked about in the earlier book and so in the second chapter of this book. And they start comparing, will, they, will this new Vietnamese audience take to Vietnamese jazz that's currently being played? That remains a question that we have to investigate further. Because one problem that we have is that they, um, although you can find Vietnamese um, jazz music on Spotify, on Apple Music, um, it probably won't appear in your preference or your recommended list for many of these listeners. Probably won't appear, so you probably won't find it. Um, as the, and as people start to look for like more um, art, cultural artifacts like um, vinyl records, it's becoming popular again nowadays. You won't find Vietnamese jazz records <laughs> anyway because it's not produced as vinyl records. CDs, yes, they're available. And again, the problem is that it's not widely distributed. So the question now for, for the future of Vietnamese jazz is that this community of practice, is it expanding to bring in all these new listeners for Vietnamese jazz in Vietnam? Or it did not. So we are at a pretty critical juncture, I would say, for Vietnamese jazz. What directions would it take? And I think all the pioneer musicians will tell you that it's very critical for us, for Vietnamese jazz musicians, to really have their own voice in the world of jazz, in the jazz world, so to speak. Because, and this brings us back to one of the things I said earlier, about Vietnamese music during the 1950s and all these pioneer musicians in, in their discussions that if they don't look to their own musical cultural heritage, if they don't develop their own voicing in the jazz world and the jazz planet, they literally have no legs to stand on. Because if you're playing like exactly what other people are playing, from North America, from Europe, who do you think people will choose to listen? You or the original artists? So it's a pretty critical juncture at this point in terms of its um, sustainability with its own unique identity. Or is it just another musical genre that's uh, accessible in Vietnam? I hope I'm making sense in when, when I put it in this way because this is the first time I actually talk about this. <laughs> I think it absolutely makes sense. Absolutely. This will come as no surprise to listeners, and this is, of course, why you're my first repeat guest. I have nothing but good things to say about this book. It's so interesting to think and work through what jazz looks like in Vietnam, what it has looked like, and what it, how it's developing into the future. You know already, Professor Tang Tongbao, that there's one ritual that I like to keep up on the New Books Network, which is to finally ask at the end of every interview what you are working on now. All right. Um, so previously, um, when, when we had the same conversation, uh, similar conversation, I told you I was working on the uh, book on the historic geography of the railway line from Haiphong in Vietnam to Kunming in, in Yunnan province, China. Going a bit slow, still working on it. <laughs> Hope to finish it soon. But um, along the way, um, something interesting happened. Two things actually. 
The first thing um, is the myself and the Vietnamese jazz music, musicians who collaborated with me in these two books, um, Jazz and Socialist Hanoi, Improvisations Between Worlds. There's the name Li Liu Kong and Quyen Da, and playing jazz and socialist Vietnam, Quyen Van Minh. So the four of us, we have been invited to do a keynote presentation at the Engaging with Vietnam International Conference at the end of October in Ho Chi Minh City. So this is um, this is an opportunity for us to express our heartfelt, heartfelt appreciation to the uh, conveners of the of the conference, namely Professor Liam Kelly and Family Ha, for giving us the opportunity. So it'd be quite exciting. For the first time, you have the four of us sitting together to talk not just about the two books, but about how Vietnamese musicians and artists really, through the, in their pursuit of this art form, really work to engage with the, their audience, to build an audience with Vietnam, pop, the, the population in Vietnam. Because as I said, jazz is a community of practice. It needs to come full circle. And right from the beginning, they have been quite well aware of them, working towards them. So that would be quite exciting, that keynote presentation. Um, then the second thing is, of course, um, recently Liu Kongmin and I started working on a book project. There's a, a social cultural history of the accordion in socialist Vietnam. So we've been talking about music a fair bit, and only red music, yellow music, and all these things. Uh, one of the things that uh, Ming, no, no, uh, Liu Kongmin himself is a noted accordionist in, in Vietnam and an accordionist professor in Vietnam. And all the things he kept reminding me is that, is that you know, the accordion is a major instrument in Vietnam during the war years, through the revolution, and even after liberation. And as you will read, as you have read in the book, light music was introduced through the accordion faculty at the National Conservatoire. Because the accordionists during the 1980s, late 1980s, were all switching to the electric keyboards to take up gigs and to play light music. And it was because of that they, they, they found the necessary platform to, okay, we should teach the electric keyboard. And if we teach the electric keyboard, we're not going to teach just classical music, we teach light music. And what, what's, what's a high quality form of light music? Jazz, international light music. So that was how it came in. So I, I think this will be a really uh, fascinating book project. I mean, Liu Kwame himself has done a lot of research in the past on the subject matter. So my role is basically to put it into, the, in, into a more global context, doing making comparisons with its development in China, Eastern Europe, and as you mentioned to me earlier, before we started this conversation, Russia. And also comparing with the studies, there, there are a few studies about accordion elsewhere in, in South America and North America and in Europe. Not a lot, but a few. So we can do make those comparisons and put it in context. So we've been doing a lot of live stories interview with Liu Guangming, and then we'll be conducting more live stories interviews with his fellow accordionist when I return to Vietnam in, in October. And right now we are trying to do it online too, via Zoom 
interviews, but it's not very effective. I mean, the conversation goes on, but that feel of things, it's always much better to do this kind of um, conversations face-to-face. So these are the two exciting things that I'm working on now. And once you get them published, I would love to have you back on the program. I will be most honored to that. <laughs> the book is Jazz and Socialist Hanoi, published in 2022 with Rutledge. Professor Stan B.H. Tan Tongbao, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Adam.